Snedden. No, I'm Rob Olson. Uh, this is the fourth installment in our Noir at the Bar reading, and the author for this episode is Mark W. Tiedemann. Mark is the author of Extensions, Real Time, of Stars and Shadows, Remains, Diva, Compass Reach, Medal of Night, Peace and Memory, Other Ways, Three Tales from the Sectant. That's right. And Mark actually read one story from one of the chat books. A couple of the, the titles that Livia's mentioned were chat books, and I don't know exactly which chat book uh, it's from. I think it's the Other Ways one, but he did read one story from one of his chat books. And there's a kind of a funny story behind that, which he, he mentions right at the beginning of, of his reading. So here it is Mark W. Tiedemann. Uh, so we come to uh, our, our batting, batting cleanup tonight is Mark W. Tiedemann. Uh, I've known Mark for a while. He is primarily known as a science fiction writer, uh, but he has branched out and is now also writing historical fiction, crime fiction, fiction fiction, just all kinds of stuff. Uh, he is also uh, the former head of the Missouri Center for the Book, which is an institution that does a lot to promote uh, literacy in in Missouri, and there are similar state organizations all over the country, and when I say literally, literacy, I don't mean people learning how to read, I mean promoting books and literature. That's actually how I know Mark, uh, is, is through the, the center of the book, and uh, just the trials that he underwent as the head of that organization the first few years ago uh, makes him, uh, qualifies him for, for at least Beatification, if not sainthood outright. Anyway, uh, without uh, prolonging things any further, here's Mark Thank you. I had all kinds of stuff I was trying to decide what to read tonight, and then the decision was made for me because I left the package of all the different things at home, and I ended up with just this, which is a chapbook of three short stories and uh, a little bit of salesmanship here. I've got three novels here which are all set in the same universe in which this chapbook also has three short stories set in the same universe and in keeping with the theme of, of bad people and crime and all that I thought I'd do this one. Of course as a good science fiction short story should be this starts and ends with an epigram. It's called Broca's Ghost. Exemplary punishment always contains an element of injustice, but individual wrongs are outweighed by the advantage of the community. Tacitus, the animals. Space and the desert are different, but the same. Clean and empty until you give them third, fourth, or fifth glances, until you give them your attention. Then you see the details, the clutter, the essential eruptions of variation that inform both environments with texture and memorable qualities. All deserts are different. Evan Borick stares out at the desert, thinking about this and how much he wants to be elsewhere. He never wanted to come back. His whole life has been spent leaving Petersgate, 
but here he is brought back to answer questions to which he himself does not want to know the answers. The stippled variety of the great Petersgate Desert spreads out to the horizon beneath a thin and decisive blue sky. The clouds are feathery brushstrokes, clear sign of the ongoing ecologic adaptation project. The ground is gray and beige, detailed like an ancient painting by Surratt, with stones, patches, lichenite, algal analogs, a kind of sporating fungus that resembles coprolites, cracks, holes, small ravines, fissures, extrusions of basaltic rock, drifting dunes that look like huge headless serpents slithering over the landscape. Dragons, Evan thinks. He's seen dragons, though never here. Petersgate is a largely empty world, emptier now in the aftermath of all the killing. He glances involuntarily at the Armada Marine transport that huddle off, transports that huddle off to the left of the other vehicles that form a rough crescent. Gray uniforms lounge against their machines, weapons held with deceptive carelessness. It is easy to believe in their power, especially after what they did to all the townships. The rebellion is over, the riots are passed, the Armada stopped the fighting. They left little standing. There's nothing to guard against anymore, not out in the desert anyway, but they're here all the same. Nothing now happens on Petersgate without military involvement. He looks away along the array of carriers. They face the blunt entrance tunnel to the prison. The low dome rises up, forming a wall against the sky. It is 100 kilometers in diameter, 150 meters high at the center, a drab, milky blue, smeared by drifts of sand. You could almost mistake it for a natural formation, a volcanic blister on the skin of the planet, but for the 70-meter-long entrance tunnel, Evan tries not to look at it, but its presence is insistent, enormous and unavoidable. Terminal City. A small group of people cluster around a tripod mounted machine at the foot of the 30-meter-tall doors. Since the rebellion, the prison has been sealed. The normal access is useless. Evan hopes it continues to resist their prying, but knows this is unlikely. These are Korove, the people who built the damn thing under contract to begin with brought in now by the Armada and the Forum to do exactly this, break into their own prison. Devil's Island. Evan looks over at the young girl, Terrell Corovey. They are alone on the transport platform. She leans on the railing, staring at the prison. She looks much like the rest of her family, long braided copper hair, slender body, high cheekbones, and a face made sad by large hazel eyes. He has noticed, though, that she avoids the others whenever possible, keeping to herself or talking to the Marines. Pardon, Kokorave, Evan says. Devil's Island. It was 16 kilometers from the mainland, thousands from the state that used it as a prison. Many of the ones Broca's theories said were incorrigible were sent there. The ones 19th century science said were innately criminal. Still wasn't far enough away, it disturbed people. Eventually it was shut down and became a resort for wealthy tourists. She looks at him. Do you think you didn't build it far enough away? I mean, 500 kilometers from Paxton, it's a considerable distance now, but in three or four generations, your growth rate would carry settlements this far out. The plan was to settle in the opposite direction. Oh, then it might have taken two centuries before urban encroachment absorbed it. We thought four. She frowns thoughtfully. Then what? Evan only shakes his head. He's grateful when she shrugs and turns her attention back to the prison. Suddenly, though, she faces him and says, My questions irritate you. In truth, everything irritates me. I don't really want to be here. I haven't been good, given a good explanation yet. Of what? Your rebellion. Not my rebellion. I left. Semantics. The Petersgate Rebellion, then. What's to explain? We disagreed with each other. Violently. Over what? Evan points. That. She looks at the dome. But, please excuse me. 
Evan says, standing. He goes to the ramp and walks quickly down to the ground towards the group at the doors. He notices a couple of Marines watch him, their hands shifting slightly on their rifles. Evan feels a laugh coming on. To them, every Peter's Gator is a terrorist. No one on the planet, native born, can be trusted. But they've been told to trust him, so there's a basic conflict for them to cope with. He suppresses the laugh and tries to ignore them. Five people stand around the platform. Two are Armada officers, Major Mab Mabros and his aide. The others are Korove, one by employ, their head of security. Old Dieter scowls alternately at the doors, the machine, the two Armada officers, and now at Evan. Ren Korove operates the platform. Her fingertips pressed against the interface panel. Her head drifts from side to side, almost lolling, eyelids fluttering. She is deep in the flow, connected directly to the prison data sphere, at least what is left of it. Sometimes she seems about to fall, but always recovers her balance. Evan sees the same lines in her face as in terror, less so in old Dieter. Try sub-level three, old Dieter says. Or let me try. Ren's eyes focus briefly, and she looks at old Dieter. When I run out of options, I'll let you know. Old Dieter glares and shrugs, just trying to be useful. Ren lets herself sink back into the flow. Evan unconsciously rubs his own fingertips together. He has no caps, no link, no way to do what Ren is doing. He has always wanted an interface. That was one reason he left Peter's Gate, but they are expensive and limited. Only a few Peter's Gators ever had them, most of them diplomats who regularly traveled off-world. For everyone else, they were illegal. Old Dieter looks at Evan. You changed things, he said. This should have been done an hour ago. You, add, you added routines. Not me, Evan says. I haven't been here in five years. Your people. Same difference. Old Dieter snorts in disgust. We built you a perfectly good prison. There was no need to meddle with it. Before Evan can answer, the air is filled with grinding thunder. He looks up in time to see the doors begin to part and slide back in tracks. He can feel it through his feet. Sand drifts down like snow from atop the entrance arch. The scene empties itself and widens. Finally, the doors stop. The noise stops. The sunlight reflected off the near white sand pushes into the tunnel but fails to reach the far end. Near the opening, the overarching ribwork is visible. Between each support runs a length of walkway. Down the very center is a trough two meters wide and 15 deep. About 10 meters in, a mesh grate blocks entry to the trough. Stairs lead up from the staging area to the walkways. Major Mavros gives a signal. Two troop transports move under the staging area and Marines spill out of them and up the stairs. The tinny sounds of their boots echo out of the tunnel. Evan waits for the sharp sound of energy pulse weapons, but after a few minutes he knows that Ren Corvey has disarmed the automated security as well. Major Mavros' aide listens to his comm and finally nods. All clear, Major Mavros says. More Marines move into the tunnel. Ren Corvey pulls out of the link, rubs her eyes, and gives quick whispered instructions to her security man, who nods and walks away, talking to his own car. Suddenly, transports are moving, people scurrying about. Evan looks around, momentarily excited by the purpose implicit in all the motion. Ren closes the lid on her panel and retracts the legs. She slings the strap over her shoulder and gazes into the tunnel. She smiles wildly, looking very tired. Some interesting wrinkles, she says. It's a jumbled mess, though. I don't understand why you found it necessary to program it to crash itself. For that matter, I don't see why you found it necessary to change it at all. The original security program was more than adequate. I had nothing to do with the decision, Evan says defensively. Of course, she shrugs. At least there was enough left to work with. No lights, Major Mavros asks, scowling. Getting the doors open was difficult enough for, from a remote, Ren says. Major Mavros nods curtly, then speaks to turns to speak to his aide and clipped milk-code syllables. 
Evan gazes up into the cavernous mouth, a clammy knot in his chest. Let's see what else you changed, Red Corvée says, and walks toward the entrance before he can reply. Resentful, he follows at a discreet distance. Lamp beams dance over the surface within, cut through the dust, all the boots have stirred into the air. At the end of the tunnel, stairs lead up from the walkways above the trough to widen to wide doors. Another corvée is working on the locking mechanism on the northern door. Evan looks across the trough to the southern side, which is a mirror image of this one, and sees Marines setting up halogens along the walkway. There, the doors slide open with a sound like fabric on skin. Three Marines, helmet lamps on, duck through, weapons ready. Evan wants to laugh. It seems they have shot up everything else on Peter's Gate, and now they're looking for more. A few moments later, one of them comes back and announces all clear in a quiet voice. In the profusion of lamps, Evan sees the room as an assembly of brief pictures, wall and monitors, a long console, chairs at separate stations, a weapons locker, a bulletin board. One and the other corvée bend over the console, studying it. She finds an interface panel and presses fingertips to its dark surface. She shakes her head, scowling, and continues researching. One of the others flips a series of switches, but nothing happens. Dead, someone says. Ren looks around and finds Evan. Well? Well, what? He snaps back. He notices Major Mavros give him a disapproving look. I've never been here before, Co Corvée. You were Paxton's city warden, Ren says. My office was in Paxton, not here. When I left Peter's Gate, Vol Masson was warden here. I have no way of knowing. You were in charge of shipping prisoners here, Major Mavros says loudly. His troops look at him, surprised, and for a moment, he is bathed in an amplite. You mean to say your duties never entailed a visit? <clears throat> no, they never did. I know it's hard for you to believe, Major, but I left Peter's Gate because I did not approve of this place. I had no desire to come see it, and my duties never made it necessary. I was only city warden for a year. If you didn't approve, why did you hold the post for so long, Ren asked. It was necessary in order to qualify for a position elsewhere, Major Mavros grunted. All right, we need light here. Sergeant? Evan watches the Marines and the Corvée move from task to task and leans against the wall, his arms tightly folded over his chest. He wishes they would stop asking him questions. He has long since stopped volunteering information. Either they find it irrelevant or they don't believe him. He is not part of this, not anymore. It is difficult to explain to people how Petersgate had become a burden to itself, how the urgency for perfection had transformed every action of every day into a demonstration of loyalty. They were suffocating under their ideals, unable to reach the free air because this place, this prison, chained them to their own brutality. Evan thinks about all this and again knows that he was right to try to leave. The prisoners who went into this facility would never conform to society, but Petersgate had conformed to their prison. So Evan had left, he and many others, many who openly descended and ended up here. The duty of every prisoner is to try to escape, and Evan had done that. He hadn't wanted to come back to Peter's Gate, ever, but he admits to a perverse curiosity that made the demand easier to accept. Revolution has taken his home. What is that like? What will it accomplish? Mare tranquillitatis. Evan jerks aside at the voice, so close. Terrell Corvey stands just inside the doorway, hands clasped behind her. What? Mare tranquillitatis, the first facility off Earth. I thought it was peculiar that they placed it in the Sea of Tranquility, but then I found out that when the American penitentiary system was first established, many of them were modeled on Auburn or Cherry Hill. They practiced quietism, the idea that prisoners must be kept quiet so that the social influences that initially caused them to be antisocial would vanish. Cherry Hill kept each prisoner completely isolated from all the rest. 
perpetual solitary confinement. Prisons were very still, very quiet, tranquil. The historian Tocqueville toured some of them. He was very impressed. He said, we have often trod during night those monotonous and dim galleries where a lamp is always burning. We felt as if we traversed catacombs. There were a thousand living beings, and yet it was a desert of solitude. Nice. I imagine no one said anything so eloquent about this place, did they? The Corvée have finally begun to ignore him. He has no answers for them now. They are deep into trying to restart the internal systems. He wanders out onto the walkway and goes down the length of the admission trough. There is no trace of the prison guard compliment. They were never really needed. Evan never understood why the post existed, but when he left, there was a staff of 25. Transports are missing from the motor pool. Clearly, they left at the first opportunity to abandon the facility. Evan sympathizes, cannot imagine working here day on day. Major Mavros and Ren Corve come out onto the walkway. Kohorave, Major Mavros says, how is this set up? What's the function of this design? The prisoner, she explains, is taken out of the transport back there at the staging area and sent through that inner gate. At the other end, down here, is the processing center, fully automated. In the unlikely event a prisoner scales these walls, there are several EP emplacements to knock them back down. In the processing center, scans are made, new clothing issued, final instructions given, and a third door opens to, re to the release chamber, which encircles the interior. The prisoner can exit the ring at any point. What if they don't exit? You mean if they try to stay inside the ring? There's a flushing system, herds them along from section to section. Hmm. And how did one gain release? There is a silence for a time, and finally Evan looks at them. Ren and Major Mavros are looking at him, waiting for an answer. One didn't, he said. This is the Petersgate Center for Social Irremediacy. No one ever gained release from here. Sentence here was sentence for life, no reprieve. Even if we'd wanted to, there was no way to get someone out. Is that where the nickname came from, Major Mavros asks? This is Terminal City. Is that how you designed it, Cocorve? No, our design incorporated release mechanisms. So where are they? Ren shakes her head. They've been removed. Caron, Terrell says, housed two dozen people who were considered irremediable. Dangers not only to society at large, but also to the general prison population. They've been transferred from maximum security facilities all over the solar system. Tranquilitatis, Marcus Labyrinthus, Enceladus, Miranda, Hermes Darkside, Two dozen people who couldn't be near anybody. Karen returned to the rule of silence from two and a half centuries earlier. No one knows if Karen was ever closed down. I couldn't find that out. Who did you put in here, Colbert? You don't know? I'm amazed. I wouldn't think that would be so difficult to find out. Someone trashed your penal data sphere before the final armada assault. Evan is startled. Huh, Major Mavos grunts. Interesting. Halogens cast almost shadowless illumination in the, center, in the control center. The monitors are all dead, though, and nothing responds to the consoles. One of the Corvées is lying on his back, peering up into the guts of one of the stations, scowling. Beside him is a power package trying to connect to the system. I'm not sure I see the point, Evan says to no one in particular. One of the Marines glances at him. The Corvée looks up. No one responds, so he shrugs. There's no power to anything, the Corvée stretched on the floor complains. He makes another connection from the power pack, and suddenly sections of the console flicker. There were only seven prisoners, Terrell says, in the Bastille in Paris when the mob stormed it. Major Mavros looks at her, frowning. Then why did they storm it? <coughs> Terrell shrugs and looks at Evan. He feels himself flush with anger. Why ask me? Seems like an interesting parallel. I wasn't here. I left. 
You were here when they built it. I was 15 when they built it. You became city warden. I told you to get a position elsewhere. He glares at her. Then at Major Mavros. You're military. Don't you people have steps you have to take to get from one position to another? Go up the ranks? When Major Mavros looks away, Evan turns to Terrell. I disapproved. I left Petersgate. You dragged me here to explain things to you that I can't explain. You said the rebellion happened over this place, she says evenly. It was one factor. Social irremediacy, Major Mavros muses. What exactly does that mean? Just what it says. No remedy. Incompatible. Incorrigible. Evan blows out a lungful of air, suddenly angry. Petersgate wanted to do away with crime, Major. When it was founded, they tried to order it in such a way that everyone would be incorporated into society usefully. Everyone would have a purpose in life. There would be work, resources, everything one could want or need, nothing to cause the kinds of social envy we believed caused so antisocial behavior in the past. Perfect. Hospices would treat anyone with adjustment problems. Very utopian, Major Mavro says dryly. You mean naive. I agree. But that was 58 years ago. Now a lot of the founders are dead. Maybe all of them now. There's no way to know how many of them really believed it could be done. All I know is that when it turned out that it couldn't, Petersgate built prisons just like everywhere else. It's all a question of tolerance, isn't it? Then when I was a boy, they built this place. Huh. Oh, they must have been angry, bitterly angry. In spite of the best intentions of the founders and everybody else, Petersgate had criminals just like everybody else. They must have been deeply disappointed. Didn't these people realize, didn't they appreciate the work and goodwill expressed by the Petersgate ideal? What was wrong with them? Couldn't they see that they had it better here than anywhere else? Evidently not, Major Macos says. Evidently. But we're reasonable people here. We believe that nothing happens without cause, so there must be an answer. There had to be something we could point to that would explain. Evan stares at his fists, knuckles white, resting on his knees. In the meantime, something has to be done. They have to be gotten out of society. The ones who had been in other facilities, been through rehabilitation, and still failed to live up to the Petersgate ideal. Their failure was our failure, but we never questioned our part in it. The ideal was the important thing. We couldn't risk the ideal, so we commissioned the Corvée to build this facility. We didn't build this, though, Red Corvée points out. You altered what we built. Evan looks up at her. He sees then that everyone is looking at him, listening. I keep telling you I didn't. Terrell touches his arm lightly and he stops. She shakes her head. You kept saying we, Code Ward. Evan leans his head back against the wall. Yes, well, maybe there's something to it after all. He looks at Grand Corvée who frowns back at him. You built us the best prison we could. You could, Code Corvée. All we did, in our own humble way, was perfected. We never thought we were imprisoning ourselves. Old Dieter shakes his head. Scowling while the technicians give their reports, Evan stops listening halfway through. Everything is fused, melted down. They will have to bring in all new equipment, tear everything out, and try to rebuild from scratch. There is no guarantee, though, that the embedded systems inside the prison area will work. Evan thinks likely that everything is ruined. He steps out of the control room and looks down the length of the tunnel. It's night, and the entrance is dark. For an instant, Evan imagines that the, door, the doors have rolled shut, and they are all trapped. He starts down the walkway toward the arch, expecting to be stopped by a marine. But he reaches the end unchallenged and stops at the stairs and looks back toward the pools of halogens. The bright lights cast overlapping clouds like an explosion caught midway and frozen. Cool desert air tosses his hair. He descends the stairs and walks out into the night. Immediately, he feels better, lighter, and his stride lengthens. Transport form enclaves of their own. 
camp walls glowing among them. Evan hears voices, hushed, intimate, laughter bursts out loudly once, startling, but no one calls to him, no one seems to notice. He keeps walking, suddenly energetic, anxious, the way he remembers as a child when he stole something, was on his way to an escape, certain at any moment that someone would catch him, hoping that he could reach the safety of outside, where he could disappear into a crowd or make, it, make his way to a place no one would think to search. Heart hammering, he feels now like that boy, on the verge of freedom, prize hidden within his shirt or jacket, private knowledge that he has gotten away, beaten or scrutiny, defied the rules. He passes the unmarked boundary the Armada vehicles imply by their positions and feels himself grin and delight. He picks up his pace, breaks into a trot, puts more distance between himself and the prison. He tops a rise and the ground slopes down gently. He crouches and looks back. The encampment is a good 200 meters away now. The prison itself is a vast shelf slicing off the stars at the horizon. The only relief in its surface the dim outline of the access tunnel. In the opposite direction, the desert is a pale fog, silvered beneath the broad Milky Way that crosses the sky almost directly above. Peter's Gate has no moon, only the stations orbiting beyond the ring of satellites. If he tries, Evan can pick them out, even against the crowded background of suns. A sharp, breathy sneeze breaks the stillness and Evan drops to the ground. He lies still, wishing his heart would slow down and stares. Off to his left, he sees a smudge against the sand, but he waits till it moves. Another sneeze and the smudge shifts position. Evan crawls forward. Damn, someone says and sneezes again. Evan recognizes the voice, Terrell Corovay, and pushes himself back to his feet. Histamine triggers, he says, and she jumps to her feet. Evan feels guilty. Allergic reaction. There's a lot of plant life out here. It only looks empty. Colboric. I didn't mean to disturb you. She sits back down and says nothing. A low hum stops then, causing Evan to notice it for the first time, only by its sudden absence. No one's alive in there, she says, are they? When Evan doesn't answer, she continues. Ren found a security net a little while ago. Automatic response set to activate in case of a breach from inside. It was military measure. Mavros recognized it. Used primarily for security perimeters of highly sensitive facilities. The kind of places people feel it better to destroy than to let be discovered by, well, by anyone else. Clever. In the event of any attempt to escape, the entire prison population would be killed. The trouble is, we can't tell what was set to go off. Biologicals, fissionables, aerobic inhibitors. The most efficient would be a neutron burst, short-lived, fairly clean, minimum destruction to the actual facility. Of course, it would be very difficult to shield against that. I mean, detection would be easier than with, say, toxins. It makes things hard. We don't know whether to open it up or leave it shut. What would you suggest? I would leave it shut. Hmm. Of course, Evan hears the hum again and looks back toward the prison. Terrell sneezes. Evan sees a dim light in her hand for a moment. Then it is gone. Dieter says we're blameless. He says all we do is build the facilities. How they're used or misused is no concern of ours. He's not very convincing, though. He's really upset about this. In the darkness, Evan sees her hold up her fist and turn it over slowly, studying it. He can't tell if she's holding anything or not, nor can he see her face. Histamine trigger, she says. That's clever. Evan shivers. Now that he's not moving, not compelled by forgotten ambitions, he feels the cold air, thin and asparic. He glances back over his shoulder, but cannot see the prison over the hump of sand behind him. We should go back, he says. We can't, she whispers. What? Terrell's head moves, and Evan imagines she is shaking it. Suddenly she looks at him. Do you believe in free will? What? Do you believe you can determine your own future? Well, 
Not exactly, no, but we can make choices. Close enough. If you could do anything, what would it be? Any choice. I have been cost. No one ever asked before. I'm asking. I'm curious. Well, I always wanted to be linked. I hoped one day to get implants under the flow, like yours. She's quiet for a time. Evan is about to suggest they return, and she says, Have you tried? No. It's expensive. It was illegal here. That's one reason I left. But I haven't saved enough yet. Don't. You can't. They have to be installed when you're a child so you can grow into it. Adult emendations don't work right. She laughs. Youth is destiny. Evan wants to leave, but inertia keeps him in place, waiting for her to move first or send him away. Terrell disturbs him. All the Corvée do, but Terrell most of all, because she fits no easy category of age and experience for him. She seems to know so much, and yet it strikes him that she does nothing with it. In fact, she tries to avoid doing anything, as if she wants nothing to do with anything around her. A waste, he thinks. He tells himself it is because of the link, that access to that much information, that much wisdom. He thinks of it as wisdom, all that combined advice and observations, and he imagines truth, distorts the normal progress of maturity. He thinks perhaps she's lying about the implants, at the same time he knows she is not. What else, she asks. I don't know. Everything else depended on my leaving Petersgate. Did you think being here prevented you from having dreams? Evan rubs his hands together nervously. He feels angry again. He resents her, resents the questions, resents even more the absence of answers. He sighs heavily, the air whistling from his nose. His lungs are laboring. It's time to go back, he thinks. But still he sits, resenting the night and the girl beside him. They built that, he says, jerking the thumb over his shoulder, and the whole planet became a prison. He bangs, hangs his head, startled at the words, troubled by how correct they sound. But he had felt it all of his life, the growing brutality from a response to something all Petersgate had wanted to deny. They were obsessed with the problem, and everything turned in one way or another to concentrate on it, to find an answer. The only answer they could find was to throw away freedom. So you escaped, Terrell says. Makes sense. Except. Except. Well, you made it so you couldn't escape. She stands shakily, and for a few seconds, Evan expects her to fall. Prisons are personal. I know. My family builds them. She sighs. You want implants? Here, you can have mine. She leans over him and drops something into his lap, then staggers up the slope and disappears over the crest. Evan stares down at the sand between his legs and small, dark lumps. He picks one up. It's soft, pliant, a finger. He sucks air through his mouth pushing himself back from the pile. Among the stubs is a longer object, and he picks it up, a surgical laser, a scalpel. Pulse throbbing, he scoops it all up and runs over the rise. Wait, he calls and sprints toward the shadows and the pale lights. He cannot see her. His lungs heave, and he feels lightheaded, dizzy, but he runs on. At the perimeter, a shadow steps in front of him. He tries to dodge it, but something hits his chest, and he feels himself spin around, feels the ground slap him hard, feels the world whip through his brain feels his thoughts scattered across the sand, along with the fingers and the laser. Damn it, what did you do? Nothing, he says. Then he feels the first kick in his side, and he says no more. He sits in the mobile infirmary, unable to find a position in which his ribs do not ache. Dawn smears the horizon. The doors are open to the desert, for which he is grateful. Across from him, Terrell lies in a medical cocoon. Her hand is swathed in biogel, but she is in shock and slightly delirious. At times, she recites statistics about other prisons, then lapses back into unconsciousness. Old Dieter climbs into the van and stares at her for a time. Then he shrugs and looks at Evan. Fourth time, he says. Can't figure it out. No? No. Have you asked her? Often. What is she saying? Old Dieter scowls. We pierced the inner wall with a probe. So far, we haven't found anything. 
it looks like we can open it up and clean it out. For a moment, Evan is confused. You should have left it alone, old dear, continues. It was a perfectly good facility when we built it. You should have left it alone. I agree. Then, old dear closes his mouth. You're going to put me in there, aren't you, Evan asks, with the others who escaped. You said no one ever escaped, so I did. Old Dieter stares at him, then grunts and leaves. Soviet gulags held the insane. Evan stares at terror. Insanity was in the desire to be free. The desire to leave the gulag demonstrated insanity. The only thing to do to escape was to want to stay in prison. And they'd let you do that. You were where you wanted to be, so you were free. She swallows loudly, and Evan sees the whites of her eyes. The machine is growing new fingers. Later, the implant caps will be reinserted. Her, he envies her. Prisons are all the same, he thinks, until you give them third, fourth, or fifth glances, until you give them your attention. Then you see details, the clutter, the essential eruptions of variation that inform the environments with texture and memorable qualities. All prisons are different. He feels like a child who's just comprehended a secret, learned something occult, discovered truth about adults, who thinks he will find power in the knowledge. He stares out the door of the van at the desert and thinks about this and how much he wants to once and how much he will never have. If we must die, we can at least be sure the guilty will be punished. Tacitus, the animus. Thank you, Mark. Uh, okay, and once again, that was Mark W. Tiedemann reading his story, Broke His Ghost. Did that guy not have the coolest hat? He had, yeah, he had a whole, he had a very, <laughs> and we'll, we'll have, we have pictures, I think, up on Facebook, but he had a, mm. a really, probably the most professional ensemble of, mm. of the group. And yeah, his hat was just rocking it harder than anybody else. And, and honestly, he's just a cool guy. I mean, I know you guys just heard the reading just as a reminder. I mean, he just read that straight through with hardly a, a stumble. I mean, he was just, he should be reading for, for recordings, you know, not just for live readings. So. For sure. Yeah. So um, that actually might be, that's the first taste of, uh, I think, sci-fi that we've had um, really in any real capacity. And it was a live reading. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but you're right. Yet another first for uh, for the, the guys that booked. We're just knocking them down. That's right. One at a time. <laughs> okay. If you're looking for more information on him, you can go to www.marktiedemann.com. We will have a link to that on the website. All right, so we're not sure where you're listening to this at. You might be listening on Stitcher, which is probably the best way to listen on the go if you have a smartphone and a you know semi-unlimited data plan. Um, but you can also get us on iTunes, and you can subscribe, and then you don't have to worry about finding us every week or whatever. All that stuff, I think, just shows up on your iDevice. That's right. Um, and I actually just, because we have so many episodes already and so many coming up, I just bumped up our, our maximum for the feed to 65 episodes. So you can go on iTunes and find these and the previous 64 episodes um, and, and catch our whole back catalog. If you're, if you're kind of new to checking this out, yep. go ahead and do it right now. We'll wait. Done. You know what I'm doing? Yeah. You know what I'm doing? I'm inevitably putting off announcing <laughs> that the next one is going to be our final installment in our noir at the bar series. Yes, and that's going to be Nick Young, uh, who was a contributor for Warmed and Bound. We didn't get a chance to talk to him as one of our Warmed and Bound sessions back when that was going on, so we were really glad that we got to meet him down in St. Louis and that we got to get him on film, celluloid, 
recorded, whatever, for for this now. Yeah, and and ladies, you're gonna want to tune back in tomorrow because he's got you know one of those accents that all women love so if for nothing else you're going to want to tune back in just to listen to that that, uh, that smooth character Nick Young yeah he's going to make you melt so uh, check back next time for now uh, I'm Rob Olson and I'm Livia Snedden keep reading but he was blue as a robin's egg and brown as a hog he said out of circulation till the dogs get